Hi, my name is Charlie, and I'm an alcoholic. And uh, we don't do it this way in California, but I'll do it since I'm your guest. Uh, through the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous and continuous sponsorship, and uh, we'll break into discussion groups later. <laughs> now I'm all confused and disoriented. Uh, because of fellowship, because of paying attention during the meeting, uh, sponsorship, and uh, making friends and trying to remain enthusiastic, I've been sober since the 11th of June of 1981. I know a lot of you like to spend the holiday with your families. I'm glad you're here with us tonight. Uh, you got all, got all your shopping done. I, um, I'm an alcoholic. I don't have any outside issues. Um, that's pretty much it. Uh, I'm, I uh, am Pete and Katie's boy. Uh, I was born and raised in Southern California. I am a Los Angeles native and... Uh, Yeah, whoop-de-doo. It's, um, and I've always, I don't know, I had, I had about three cups of coffee since we had dinner and, and a bag of M&Ms, and I don't know whether to tell my story or just break into a couple of numbers from Dream Girls, you know. Uh, I'm just, it's just starting to kick in now, you know, and um, wow. Uh, I, I, Don't, I've searched for a reason to be alcoholic. Uh, I've been looking for all the loopholes that, that uh, Sherry was talking about, and I, I loved Sherry's talk and, and uh, her, her heartfelt enthusiasm for going through pain to try to find what's on the other side because it's, uh, it really is, uh, well, as they say in my neck of the woods, it sucks. But if you're sober, it's a much higher quality of suck. So... <laughs> And uh, I just never could figure out, I didn't have any, I couldn't figure out any issue, whoops, any issues. And uh, I just was a garden variety alcoholic with a really dumb story. And I wasn't, when I got to AA, I wasn't even able to evoke any pity from anybody. I was just like a, you know, I, I used to love the guys that would come into AA meetings and they'd walk in the door and you'd hear people, this big intake of breath because they were so frightening. You know, they walk in and people would go, oh my God, look at this. And then there were the people who would walk in and everybody would go, oh God, this guy's great. Look at him, he's so pathetic. We can really help this guy. That's, that didn't happen with me either way. I came into AA and people forgot who I was while they were shaking my hand. <laughs> I um, cast no shadow in AA and... And I was just, I, I felt like I'd be, I was going to be another loser here, just like I always felt, because that's how I always felt in my life. I, like 
uh, a lot of people in the program uh, with our affliction um, hate the human race <laughs> and simultaneously demand its approval, <laughs> which really gives your life a sense of torque. You know, uh, it's it's painful, but it'll get you moving. And I, I, to this day, you know, I've gotten better, but I just can't. People just, I don't even want to get started. I um, <laughs> I almost pick up the newspaper in the morning with a pair of tweezers to read to read what they've been doing. You know, because it's not me, and it's certainly not us. It's them. Every single one of us knows that it's them that make me the way I am. If they would get better, then I would naturally feel better and I wouldn't have this conflict. But because they act like such a bunch of, as my sponsor likes to say, a bunch of little miserable ferret-faced bastards, (laughs) I have no alternative but to react because I am of noble ideal. And I have the bigger picture and I'm not one of those little weaselly rats in a cage like they are. I've got a bigger plan. I can't articulate it right now, but I've got one. I know what it is. And uh, that's how I always felt about people. And I was also burdened from the very start with, with potential. Uh, you laugh, but that's, those are the people who also have it. And um, I, real, I realized after I'd been sober for a while, because I didn't know it at the time, and, any, and incidentally, I always have to tell you this, this caveat, is that what I'm telling you from the podium, if you're new, I didn't have these, experience, these awarenesses in real time. You know, I didn't understand what was happening to me while it was going along. It's only because I've been in AA for a while and been coming to meetings and taking direction and doing the steps and trying to be part of the fellowship and listening to other people's stories because that's how we connect ourselves with each other in AA and that's what builds the fellowship is our stories, is that we talk to each other about what happened to us and every so often, and even if not every so often, we listen to each other and we glean experience off of each other. And we also take what other people have said and we, we remember that when we run into a similar situation. And that's what keeps most of us sober. And if we can't remember something, then we call somebody. You know, quick, remind me why I shouldn't, you know, key this guy's car. Uh, just <laughs> tell me again, you know, because I need to hear this. Because I right now I'm coming up snake eyes with a reason why not to. And... Um, so, but I had this potential and I kept being brought into principal's offices and teacher's offices and counselor's offices and priest's offices and with my parents in tow. And my dad had, I guess, he, I, I keep trying to figure it, figure it out, but he had about a fourth or fifth grade education. And my mom had about a seventh grade education. And... Uh, they really wanted things for me because I was their only child. And my mom had had three other pregnancies besides me, and they'd all died at birth. And so when I was born, things, you know, all I had to do was, <clears throat> and everything happened in the house. I mean, they got scrubbed down like a surgical station, and uh, which is a sense of power all its own, but it makes you feel like a little weird freak at the same time. And uh, I wheezed a lot when I was a kid. I had asthma. You can tell that my, uh, <laughs> my sporting success days are ahead of me. And uh, I... Um, was not into group sports, or, well, because there, uh, there would be a group, obviously. And, um, <laughs> but I, I did okay in school. I, I was a, you know, I was 
it was sort of came naturally to me. I liked to read. I was a good speller, which you know helped me with women later on. And uh, I uh, just was okay in school. I just did, I'd put the minimum amount of effort in, and I knew I was going to do great things sometime, but just not right on that week. And um, I, but we'd get hauled in the office anyway, and they would sit there with a big fat. We used to call them cum folders. I don't know what they call them now, but it's a cumulative folder of all your work and your grades and things. And sitting in front of them, and they'd look through it real quietly. And my parents would sit there and nervously shift in their seats because it's an authority figure talking to them about their son. And they would say something like, um, "Charles has a lot of potential. We just don't understand why he doesn't do anything with it." And my reaction to that was always the same, and that is, I know I've got potential. My parents now know I've got potential. You know I've got it. And I will use it when I'm goddamn good and ready to use it. (laughs) But not even that much sooner. Because I'm not your pet pig, and I'm not going to go to the 4-H club fair with your, and, and uh, perform when you tell me to do it. I'll do it when I'm ready. And when I do finally use my potential, I suggest you put on a pair of sunglasses, Scooter, because I'm going to light you up. <laughs> but until that happens, maybe you want to take your idiotic concern from my potential and go wipe it on some other idiot. Because if you were such hot stuff, you wouldn't be a high school counselor now, would you? <laughs> Um, it never came out in exactly those words. I usually said something like, I'll try harder. And that's a part of a problem all its own anyway. But I, I uh, got out of school with no notoriety except this, this just burning potential. And, and I uh, started working in the music industry at a, at a, well, as a clerk at a record store. And I was working there. And... Uh, <laughs> Some of the guys from my school that were sort of the troublemakers came into that record store and they invited me to a party, as I recollect. And uh, I, I asked my best buddy, John, to go, you know, he drove, he had a car, he could drive. And, he's, and I said, let's go to the party. And, and so we, we were going to go to the party. I, then the day of the party, I felt like a lot of us do. I, I just didn't want to go to the party at that point because as I understood, I had never been to a party before. And I was 18 at the time. I'd never had a drink before, but I'd never been to a party before because it was, you know, I just had never been invited. And because if I had been invited, I wouldn't have gone because there, as I understand it, would be people at the party. And uh, <laughs> it was very complicated. And furthermore, um, I've come to realize something later on in my life, and that is that I would rather say I'm going to do something and then just not do it than to say no and have you feel bad. Follow me on this, because it becomes just that close to brilliant. Um, (laughs) For instance, I would rather ask you out on a date and have you say yes, and we set the time up for next Saturday. And next Saturday rolls around, 7 o'clock. I just don't show up. And you never expected me to. Because the time... I would have, in my imagination, the fun I would have, the expectation I would have, that date could never live up to it. So why disappoint each other? Let's just say we'll go out and then not go out. It seems perfect. You don't, I don't have to listen to your stories. 
you know, I don't have to try to make things up about what I'm going to do with my life, and uh, it'll all be fine. But I stupidly said, I'll go to the party, and I, and I told my buddy, and we went to the party, and ten minutes into that party, I was standing there feeling just like I always do around a crowd of people, and that is, you've got to be kidding what am I doing here? I don't fit in with these people. I hate these people. They're a little bunch of, they're miserable. It was 1968. Uh, it, was, it was the height of everything, according, at least according to Tom Brokaw. Uh, but uh, it, everything was happening. And here was all these, counter, these counterculture hippie types, as hippie as you could be in Anaheim, California. Uh, but these these peaceniks in this big Victorian house. There are probably 200 kids there. Half the room's drunk. Half the room's on acid. They're all phony little rats, as far as I can see. They're just little chatterboxes of this, all this phony hippie jargon, and I couldn't stand it. And I'd been there for five minutes, and I'm standing off the side just, just seething with anger about, how did I get sucked into this one more time? Having to do something I don't want to do with a bunch of people I don't even care about, and they're just reinforcing all the stuff I feel about people anyway, and that is that I don't fit into this world, and I don't like these people, and I just wish I was gone out of here. And a guy walked by and handed me a can of malt liquor. And I thought, oh goody, now I get to be even more like you. You know, now I can add substance abuse to my long list of accomplishments, because uh, it certainly makes you seem a lot nicer and brighter. You know, and I, I just running that stuff in my head. And I'd only been there, you know, a short time, so I started drinking this can of malt liquor. And about halfway through that can of malt liquor, it occurred to me that I'd been way too hard on you people. <laughs> I started to all of a sudden become kind of fond of you, really. I started to feel more accepting and gentler, and I felt my potential filling up while I was standing there. And I felt full of happiness. And after about the bottom of that can of malt liquor, I was almost at the, I was at the cusp of joy. You know, I wasn't quite there yet, but why get there? Why, why not just stall it? just to make it even better, you know? And I was alive, as I recall it, for the first time in my life where I felt like something had happened to me where I felt like I was supposed to feel all along that when I had that can of malt liquor, it made me feel like I'm supposed to feel. This is how humans feel. Is not like there's no separation between me and you right now. I feel comfortable. I feel connected. I feel like I could sit and listen to you all night. And that was a great feeling because for it, what happened that I didn't even recognize that night was for, for that first time in my life, I found something that separated me from my self-absorption. Something that distanced me from that sensation of all the time keep calibrating what people are thinking and looking like and acting like in, re- in relation to what I am, you know, where you can see yourself from aerial photographs and you can hear your own voice and you're rewriting the script of what you're going to say in your head and everything is just, you know, it's a constant self-immersion that separates me from other people. And when I drank, that just went away and I felt good. And I didn't ever want to go back to the way I felt before I got to that party. And I remember I went into a blackout that night, 
And the only way I, I, try, I tell this because I think newcomers understand this too, that the only way I can describe the way alcohol worked for me was when I drank, it brought me there. And I think every alcoholic understands where there is. Because there is that place where it's just, per, it's great, and it's going to be perfect in just a little while. And so I keep going, because I'm there. I'm riding the moment, and I'm, I'm the point man in life. And alcohol fuels that for me, and it makes me feel like there's nothing that can harm me, and there's nothing that can stop me, and the whole world is wide open, and, I, and it gives me hope. And that's what alcohol did for me. And I, and I felt I got that effect from alcohol for a long time, not realizing, as I understand now, based on inventories and other people's stories and that, that only about 5% of the human race gets that effect from alcohol. Most people get a giddy feeling, and then they, like my first ex-wife, she just, uh, oh, boy, i got to stop. I'm starting to lose control. You know, and I thought, well, no, you're starting to become a quitter. Is your problem? <laughs> your problem is you quit too soon. You know, because the, the the difference between her and me was that when I drink, I'm just starting to get some control. When I'm sober, I feel like everything is out of my control. I don't know how to make anything happen or what perspective to have on things. But when I drink, it gives me perception. It gives me focus. It makes me drive better. It, uh, it just does, it enhances everything about life for me and my participation in life. And it doesn't work that way for most people. Alcohol gives me the satisfaction of a job well done without having to do a damn thing. <laughs> and that's it in a nutshell. And um, I have a boring drunk along. I mean, I, came out, I went into a blackout at that party. I came out of the blackout running alongside of John's car, hanging onto the door handle and barfing on myself and laughing my ass off because I'd been there, you know, and, and all, the, you know, all the other stuff doesn't matter because once I found that, I'm going back as soon as I can. And um, I just enjoy, I just like to save my life. I don't know what would have happened to me if I continued on the course I was on without ever having gotten drunk or had a drink. Because I, you know, I read the papers a lot, and I read, keep up with the news, and I see what happens with lonely kids that feel oppressed by the world and don't have any outlet or vent for it, and they finally find an outlet for that. And I was one of those kind of kids. You know, I wasn't a bad kid. I wasn't a mean kid. I wasn't a cruel kid. I was basically just a nice kid who hated everything because I never could figure out a way to be part of something. So when I can't feel comfortable with something and when I don't understand something, it's easiest for me just to hate it and dismiss it. And when I drank, what happened was it reconciled all that conflict and it made it feel like, oh, I must have been overjudging everybody because I feel fine about it now. And I, I got married. I keep hitting this thing. Sorry, Gary. I, um, I got married. I, I got a job uh, at a college bookstore because I wanted to be in publishing. So I, uh, I was a receiving clerk at Santa Monica College Bookstore and uh, worked there, just a stepping stone job, till I got my writing career going. Uh, 
I was there for 12 years. And um, I met a woman there and fell in love and got married. And uh, her only defect of character was that she loved me. And I am of the or was of the personality type that when the excitement went out of the relationship, I thought that the relationship was over too. You know, that, that electricity. When that goes away, then what's left? I mean, I wasn't mature enough to take it to the next level or be a man. So I acted like a boy and just shut everything off and felt hurt and, and pushed her away. And, and she wanted a divorce after five years. And, and I drank my way through that marriage. I, my drunkalog is tedious, really. I've never come out of a blackout saying, cover me, I'm going in, you know. Or, um, <laughs> I come out of a blackout saying, all right, cut the red wire. You know, um, <laughs> you've heard them. You've heard them all. I've never come out of a blackout saying much of anything, actually. I've come out of a blackout with people saying stuff to me like, boy, I bet that hurt. <laughs> uh, because uh, I lose my eye-hand-foot coordination when I drink, but my mind is sharp, but I just lose other other abilities. So... Um, I've, I've come out of blackouts, you know, I don't even want to go there. Should I tell a sex story? No. Uh, why not? Every woman does. Why not me? Um, no. I've been pulled over by the police numerous times and never arrested. I've been swung at but have been light enough on my feet to pull back my head enough to miss the punch sometimes. And um, by the time uh, I had worked my way through 12 years of drinking, I was peeing blood. I was still at that bookstore. I had given up on every dream I'd had. And I'd given up on pretty much everything in my life. And I didn't go to jail. I didn't have all, I didn't lose a house because I never had a house to lose. Uh, I didn't lose a family. I lost a wife. I didn't lose her. She had to leave. You know, I didn't, lo- I didn't misplace her. You know, so I lost my wife. Well, that's careless. Um, I, um, I have a, had, I always tell the story when I talk, and if you've heard it before, forgive me, but I got to tell it because I think it, it illustrates a point. And that is, um, I, had a, I live in Burbank. I have a neighbor across the street, a couple named Lisa and Tom, and they're two little kids. And, uh, and Tom, about four years ago, got pancreatic cancer. And he was a big, strapping 49, 48-year-old guy who was a, a set builder at the studios and, and did a lot of work. And he was the, he's just a good neighbor, not an alcoholic at all. And that has nothing to do with him being alcoholic. But Tom got pancreatic cancer in about October of, of uh, 2004 and, um, or 2003. And he went in for surgery. And so I asked his wife how his surgery went. And she said, well, it went as well as it can. And I said, well, did they get the cancer? And she said, well, they didn't go in to get the cancer. And I didn't understand. And she said, what they did was for pancreatic cancer, they went in and they took out parts of his stomach and his intestines and they took his spleen out and they took a lot of perfectly healthy organs and took them away to give a place for the tumor to grow so he won't be in so much pain and he can, he can survive the holidays with the kids before he dies. 
and he'll live through the holidays. So they took out all these other parts to give the cancer room to grow. And I mean, no, uh, tr- I'm not trying to trivialize this man's illness, and he did die the following, uh, the following Valentine's Day. And, um, but isn't that just like alcoholism, that we cut away perfectly good parts of our lives to allow a place for the disease to grow? We cut away relatives, we cut away friendships, we cut away occupations, we cut away dreams, we cut away every single thing that we hold dear or that we might even possibly hold dear just to allow a place to let that disease grow one more cubic centimeter so I can survive one more time, one more day. And that's what happened to me. You know, by the 11th of June of 1981, I'd been in therapy for two years. It wasn't going terribly well, duh. Um, the therapist had told me she was a wonderful woman. She uh, she was just a great therapist. But unfortunately, in my case, therapy didn't work with alcoholism because I wasn't it wasn't dealing with the problem. And but she tried, and she uh, you know I came in there one time after I'd been drinking at lunch, and she said, "Don't ever come in here smelling like alcohol again, or I won't treat you again." So I, I waited till after the sessions to drink, and um, and just. You know, it was, um, I'd had enough. I went to a meditation retreat that she was holding, and I was going to, uh, I got up there, I thought it helped me get some, you know, spiritual boogie-woogie going. <laughs> and uh, while I was up there, she led this guided meditation in this uh, room and told us to go out after the meditation was over and wander through the grounds and uh, take a look at where your life Tell him I'm in the tub. Uh, now I'm going to tell the part that could have saved her life if she'd only chosen to let it go to message machine. Um, so I was going to go. Uh, she said, "I want you after the meditation, the guided meditation. I want you to go out on the on the meditation grounds, and they were beautiful. They were Montecito, California, gorgeous place." Go out on the meditation grounds, and I want you to spend the next five hours thinking about your life, where it's going, where you'll be five years from now. Well, I've been, I've been meditating that morning with them, and I saw myself in five years. I was hanging from my bathroom door. That was the visual I got. Uh, yeah, you can laugh, but uh, it was enough to make me want a refund, I'll tell you that. I, uh, I was staring at myself hanging from the bathroom door by the, ro- by the belt of my robe cranked under the door jam and just dangling there with my tongue hanging out and I was dead and that's what I saw my she when she had guided the meditation she said now look through a waterfall and see where you're going to be in 5 years from now and that's what I saw so I thought why bother even you know go wander around the grounds and think about my life for the next where it's going to go for the next 5 years I don't think so I got a good idea though I'm going to get right down by the bumper of your car and you floor it you know, because I just want out of here. I just want to be gone. I don't want to sit around. I'm so self-absorbed now, and I'm drinking every day and every night, and I'm pissing blood, and I haven't, I've disconnected my friendships. I've disconnected my marriage. I've disconnected everything that means anything to me just to keep it away because I don't want you to get closer because I don't know how to handle you anymore, and I don't, I feel as alienated from people as I did from the first time I remember being around people, and yet now even the alcohol wasn't getting me anywhere. I, was, I would feel that way drunk. 
and I was terrified. And I, and I just went out on the meditation grounds, and I sat down, and I thought, I, I'm, I'm done. I'm just done with life. I just want to be whatever has to happen. I wish something could just let me die and whoosh, be gone. And what happened was I got a feeling that went through my entire being that said, you are everything that you're afraid of, and I still love you. And I didn't know where that came from. I remember it like it happened this afternoon. And I felt loved for about 30 seconds. I mean, completely loved inside. And I didn't know where it came from at all, and I thought I was losing my mind. I believe now, you know, I believed it even after I got to AA, that, that it was the intersection of a power that's greater than I am that managed to, you know, not come through my barrier, but because I stopped fighting everything, it managed to let itself out from inside of me where it had been in there all along. And all I had done was lock the door and lock it in and not ever let it out because I was going to run the world on my power, on my choices. That's what guys do is, you know, I I make my decisions. I live with my decisions. I have dreams of what I should be doing. I should be doing this. And, you know, meanwhile, you get these little taps. Hey, no, go this way. In a second, in a second. And I'm, I'm guiding my life off the edge of a cliff. And that's where I was that day on the 11th of June of 1981. And I went home from that meditation retreat, and I haven't had a drink or a pill or a joint or anything that affects me from the neck up. No near beer, because I don't want to be near sober. Um, (laughs) Drinking near beer. An alcoholic drinking near beer is like a recovering junkie taking an empty syringe and just picking at his arm. You know? You can call yourself sober, but come on. I mean, give it up. And uh, so I I uh, went home. I didn't get to AA for a while. I stayed sober for four days or five days on my own. I thought things were supposed to get better. You talk about, I mean, our book talks about being rocketed into a fourth dimension, but not like this. Uh, I forgot how to walk my second day. I, uh, I was sick. I was tired. I was... Everything was confusing, and, and uh, so I started locking everything down again. When I get scared, I lock up shop. I close everything, pull the blinds down. Uh, all the lights are out, and everybody's home. And I, um, that's how I am. That's just my nature. And what happened was my mother-in-law, her name is Sue, and she called me that Thursday, and she said, I need, I need you to do me a favor. And I said, sure, what's that? And she said, would you go pick up Debbie? That was my sister-in-law. Would you pick Debbie up from uh, the care unit in Orange and bring her to an AA meeting on Sunday night? And I said, okay, I can, I can do that. I quit drinking myself this week, so I can, I can do that. You know? I'm, doing, I'm doing great. You know? <laughs> what was that? Uh, and... I would hear, you know, the same Steely Dan song playing over and over again in my car, and it, the radio wasn't even hooked up. Nothing was even, the wires weren't connected. I would hear people in the back seat of my car going, Charlie, you know, and, and just keep 
looking. It's just, it was weird. It was just, and I'm, I'm not stupid. I know there's nobody back there, but I still looked every single time because I kept hearing my name being called. I didn't think it might have been self-absorption maybe, but... Uh, and then I had the imaginary gnats that congregated in my peripheral vision. I don't know if anybody has had those, but, but when they get there and you go to look at it, to see, like, what the hell is And you look and it's, it's gone. So you go back to focusing your attention on who you're talking to and right back again and they're right there. So I have no alternative but to brush them away. And so... That's how I appeared at work for four days, just walking around at work. And my boss would come in and go, are you all right? Well, I'm fine. I'm fine, really. I'm just, you know, it's a gnat, some kind of gnat infestation back here. They don't seem to be hungry for you, but I... Uh, this is a woman who, I, when I got drunk one night and, and I, I couldn't find my way home, I couldn't find the freeway to get home, but I could find her house. Isn't that always the way it is? You, you can't find the freeway, but you can find your boss's house uh, at 1.30 in the morning. And I was... And she came to the door and she tried to get me drunker so I'd pass out. And I don't know about anybody else here, but when I start drinking through a drunk, I start getting a second wind. You know, you start... Yeah, I feel much better now. And uh, I left her house and tried to get on the freeway going the wrong direction. And uh, fortunately, there was someone going the other direction, getting off the freeway, and bumped me off. And I, I, got, I didn't have that happen. But it could have happened. You know, Norm Alpe used to talk about this, and Sharon, used, Sharon C. talks about this all the time. And that is that we, we get here just by, there are bullets whizzing by our ear. We just, you know, sometimes we don't even notice it, but we feel the presence of some danger just go past your head. And what was that? Oh, it couldn't have been anything. It was just death that went right past your head. And how, do, how was it? Was it the grace of God? Not at all. Not at all. I don't believe that I didn't get on that freeway because God was lending me his grace because if that was the case then no one would be getting on the freeway and killing innocent people or themselves because God as I believe in him loves everyone equally so why would he favor me and let someone else who even now somewhere in Kansas somewhere in Los Angeles in my neighborhood some Nimrod is drunk and driving down the wrong direction on the freeway and is going to kill some innocent people does that mean that God isn't with them not at all. What it means is that I was lucky and they weren't. And you are lucky. We're all lucky to be here amongst each other. It's pure luck. Grace comes afterward when we realize that we have something we couldn't get on our own. And then we start to listen to the power that's greater than we are. That's where God's grace comes in. That's where we can take God's grace and, and try to do something with it. But I don't even know where it is. And God, I think God must throw his grace around like, like soldiers to a crowd full of kids. You know, just throw candy to everybody because everybody is good in their eyes and everybody can have whatever God wants to give them, whatever he throws us. And most of us are going, that's not it. Oh, shit, that's not it. <laughs> Come on, give me, some, give me some real candy, you know. Um, Oh, wait, here's the candy. There we go. I'm following this guy. 
You know, and that's how I lived my life with alcohol. I followed this guy and didn't listen to anything that was going on inside of me. And uh, and so I, I went and picked Debbie up. And, and uh, she had gotten out of this care unit, and she looked amazing. I mean, I'm, I'm usually on hormone alert anyway, and she... Uh, <laughs> She looked remarkable, and I'd been drunk with her a lot of times, and she looked different. Some, she didn't look; she just looked alive and fresh and clear and radiant. And I didn't know what it was. I didn't think, "Oh my goodness, she's taking God's grace." Uh, I just looked at her and thought, "What is she? She looks great." And so it took about 20 minutes to get to this AA meeting, and in that 20 minutes, she 12-stepped me. And she did not give me a hard sell. She didn't tell me what I should do with my life. She didn't uh, give me any object lessons to think about. What she said was, I've been going to three AA meetings a day for the last 21 days, and I feel really different, and really I just feel like a different person. And, and it seems to be working because I haven't had a drink in 20, 22 days. This is my 22nd day, and I just feel good. And I'm so happy to, to do this. And I'm glad, thank you for coming and getting the getting me from there and taking me to the meeting because I appreciate it. And it took about 20 minutes to get to that meeting. This woman, now keep in mind, this woman had 22 days of sobriety. And she gave me a, a message that saved my life. And I wasn't even looking for a message. I was just there because Debbie needed a ride. And I thought maybe since I'd been separated from my wife for about 20 minutes, we might get something going. <laughs> truthfully, truthfully, that's the reason I went to pick her up. I thought it would make her like me because it's really important to have somebody like me. And, uh, and I picked her up, and I was twitching, you know, and we pull up to the meeting, and I pull up to the curb, and I said, I'll come back and get you in an hour and a half. And she said, why don't you come in? Why don't you come into the meeting? And I said, because I'm not an alcoholic. <laughs> and... And she said something that, that really was uh, turned me around. She said, that's okay. You don't have to be an alcoholic. It's an open AA meeting. Come on in and maybe you'll hear it. Since you quit drinking this week, maybe you'll hear something that will help you. And I thought, that sounds fair. She didn't try to sell me on anything. She just said, it's an open meeting. You're welcome to come in and listen, and uh, maybe you'll hear something that will help you since you quit, trying trying to quit. Okay. So I parked the car and went into the meeting. And... Uh, I didn't want to be there. I looked around the room, and my first reaction was loserama. <laughs> Everybody was just, you know, I had at least had an ember of potential burning, but this crowd had obviously just been, you know, the ash bin was full. And... Uh, <laughs> I didn't want to be here, and people kept... I was in a... Now, I've got to describe. I was in a deerstalker, like a Sherlock Holmes hat that I cherished. I had hair down about here, because I had some hair back then, and I had a, a nice mustache, and I had sunglasses on, and I had a wool jacket with a wool sweater vest with a shirt buttoned all the way to the neck, and it was about 111 outside. <laughs> and uh, I'm in the back of the meeting in a pair of... I had dirty Levi's and boots on, and I'm rocking in the back of the meeting going like this, and, and getting really annoyed when people would come up and go, are you new? And I, my reaction was, no, I'm not new. I got four days. 
I haven't had a drink in four days. Because the way I looked at it, you were only you were new if you came across the threshold of the meeting drunk. That was new. But I had four days. And they chuckled like you just laughed. And I thought and I took offense to that. I didn't get it that I didn't get it that they had, had four days and they understood what it was like. My reaction was, hey, four days those are the hardest four goddamn days I've ever spent in my life. You might try to just dispense with your little chuckle and start looking at me with the respect that I deserve. It didn't come out in exactly those words. I said something like, I'm with Debbie. But I, um, I, I just sat, sat through the meeting, and I came back the next week because Debbie was going to get a chip, you know, which was a big thing. You get a chip. I don't know if they give out, they give out chips here. And I, they get you to get yourself a chip. <laughs> and I thought, well, I can't. I've got to witness this. Uh, after all, they did take all the trouble to get me a big book. That was another thing that annoyed the crap out of me the first meeting I went to. Hey, Charlie, you, you knew? Yeah? You got a big book? Is this a trick question? Because I work in a bookstore. And we got a lot of big books in the bookstore. <laughs> and if it's not as big as Arneson Art Through the Ages, I don't think it's a very big book at all. <laughs> I didn't say that. I said, I don't think so. And um, so they trotted me up to the literature table where they had the literature lady. You know, and, oh, God. This is like a level of agony you can't even replicate. You'd have to use fingernail splints to really make it recall this. I go up there and the woman goes, well, here's, here, here's a big book. And I kept thinking, does it have a title? Does it have, like, like you don't walk around here going, hey, how about some clear liquid? You know? Uh, care for any more brown drink? Um, it's got a title. It says Alcoholics Anonymous on the title. And frankly, that's a pretty dumb title anyway, because anything that calls itself anonymous is not really, is it? I mean, you can't say you're Alcoholics Anonymous and expect me to believe you because you just told me what you are. It's complex. Just bear with me. And um, So I didn't have, I, no, I don't have a big book. You know, and uh, so they said, well, it's, it's uh, at the time, it was $4, and four or five bucks. And, and I, I was embarrassed because I had, I think I had three bucks in my pocket. And uh, she said, here, I'll tell you what. You give me $2. Here's the book. It's yours. Keep it. You don't owe me anything. Save that dollar and put it in the basket because you can't stay sober on somebody else's dime. You put that in the basket when it goes around, Okay. And then she said, and if you get the money and you feel like it, you get the other $3, bring it back, great. If not, I'm not going to worry about it. We're even here. Just, in, just take the book and learn from it and come back. Okay, I walk away from her, and I felt worse than I'd felt in a long time because I was into the IRS. I was into every credit card company in North America. I owed my ex-wife money. I owed everybody money. I owed my employer money. I was writing him bad checks. And now, now, I'm into AA for three bucks. Where is the bottom of this pool? I just keep... 
So I went back the next week and I gave that woman her three bucks back. I'll tell you that. I strode up to there and said, I owe you three dollars. I want to get it squared. And I walked away and I felt better. And I'll tell you why. Because I'd followed through on something and just did something to make something right. Even though it was just three bucks, it made me feel different. And I stayed at the meeting and I watched Debbie get her chip. Uh, Not just a chip, a chip and a hug. You know, uh... We all, down in California, we all get Midwestern accents when we get sober. You know, it's seen weird. People be talking like, you know, talking street talk. And then you get sober and all of a sudden they're from Wisconsin, you know. <laughs> yeah, we got a God here. And um, so, so she got her chip and they all cried and all the rehab people were there and everybody was weeping and, you know, she let me look at her chip. <laughs> and... Um, she said, if you get 30 days sobriety, come back and you'll get a chip and a hug too. And I thought, ooh, a chip and a hug. You know, I, I, don't, I don't want anybody to touch me. I mean, for God's sake, just get... I have a friend named Eileen W. who says when she came to AA, her first direction was, help me. And I got that immediately when she said that because I want your help, but I want it on my terms and I don't want you getting too close. And, and people just chuckled about that and they didn't try to get too close. They didn't push me. They didn't prod me. They just said, keep coming back. They kept saying things like, go up and thank the speaker. I thought, well, I didn't like him. And they said, uh, they said, your approval of him is not necessary to thank him. One guy spoke there and they said, he, that guy got dressed and drove here all the way from Los Angeles. This is down in Orange County. It was about 50 miles away. He got dressed and came down here to talk and share what he knows about this program for nothing, for free, for fun and for free. And you might just want to go up and thank him for his time, you know, even if you didn't get anything out of it. And so I thought, okay. So I started doing what people were suggesting that I do, and I still wasn't feeling any better, and I wouldn't get a sponsor. And I said, you know, did you get a sponsor yet? Well, what do I need a sponsor for? Well, he'll, he'll walk you through the big book. Oh, oh, well, now I should get a sponsor to help me with this complicated text. (laughs) This deep metaphysical tone. Let's take all these sentences apart and find out what Bill really meant by although. (laughs) You know, I go to meetings. There's some meetings in Los Angeles, you know, you can... You got people throwing chicken bones and feathers on the big book and woogie boogie boogie and uh, <laughs> trying to channel Bill and Bob and uh, walk me through the big book. Come on, I've got a degree in, ju- in in journalism with a minor in British literature from the Renaissance. I've taken apart some of the most beautiful. Con- complex language in the uh, wording in the human language. I've parsed sentences. I know where the cesura falls in a line. I know what the rhyme scheme is. I know how to how to read the meter of the line. I can't tell you how I feel right now, but I can do all that. And um, so I don't know that I'm going to be terribly impressed with the jaywalker analogy. I don't think I need a spirit guide to lead me through the convoluted logic of G Ma, ain't it grand? The wind stopped blowing. <laughs> or learn more about King Alcohol and the denizens of his mad realm. 
so maybe I don't need a sponsor. I think I can get this all by myself. But they wouldn't let up. And eventually I wound up in the Pacific Group, and, and they were relentless. And I finally got a sponsor. And this guy sat me down and said, are you willing to do anything to stay sober? And I said, yes, I am. And he said, that's good. What I want you to do is I want you to shave that mustache off and trim your hair, and I'll see you at the men's stag on Friday. I knew that, you know, I hadn't read much of the big book, but I knew there was no chapter to the barber in there. And uh, I said, uh, where does it say in the big book? He says it's not a part of the big book. Okay, well, in AA, why do, he says it's not a part of AA. And I just sat there across the table from him at this coffee shop and looked at him, and he goes, I can see you're confused. <laughs> Normally, I don't explain directions when I give them, but I'm feeling kind of generous tonight, so I'm going to give you a freebie, sport. <laughs> you just said 30 seconds ago that you were willing to do anything to stay sober, right? And I said, yeah. And he said, I just asked you to shave your mustache off, right? Yeah. And he said, if you won't shave your mustache off simply because I asked you to do it, what makes me think that you're going to do the steps when it comes to doing those? They're a lot more complicated than grooming. I just want to find out if you're a loser or not, and I guess I'll know on Friday. And he got up and walked out of the coffee shop before I could even get, you know... uh, But what happened was, without believing a thing that he said, and without even knowing this guy, I only asked him because he looked kind. And the two meetings of the Pacific Group I had been to, he'd been nice to me. And he was taller than I am, and he was meaner than I have been. And I, he, I, he was, I'm a people pleaser by nature, and uh, he was not one who courted people pleasers well and I thought maybe I'll respect this guy so I asked him to, help, to sponsor me so I, I, but I didn't believe a word he said so I went home that uh, you know, the, the Friday I was supposed to meet him at the men's stay I got up in the morning and I looked in the mirror and I thought to myself and, and I felt it down here if I fight one more thing I'm not going to make it and I took my razor I shaved that mustache off went to the men's stag that night go walking in Bill comes in a few minutes later. He's talking to some people. He looks across the room and sees me. Just comes cutting across the crowd. Stuck his arm around my shoulder and said, here we go, sport. And he's been my sponsor for the last 26 and a half years. And uh, that man has guided me through uh, a lot of things. Um, simply because I've been willing to do something that another person suggests I do without questioning it or without modifying it for my use, you know, and and going and doing it. And and Bill helped me through my first divorce. He helped me through my second divorce. Um, I've been, I, you know, he said, if you want to complain about your job at the bookstore, you have to do something about it. So I want you to go back to college and get your graduate degree. And I said, oh, God. Oh, I swore I'd never go back to college. I'd be the oldest guy in the college class. I was 30, and when he told me to do this, I was 33. And I thought, you've got to be kidding. I can't do that, you know. Meanwhile, I'm doing the steps. I'm going, he told me, I want you to go to meetings early, an hour early. I want you to shake hands. I do not want to see your butt in a seat before the gavel sounds. You are up and shaking hands with people and asking them their name. Oh, God, I don't even care what their name is. And ask them how their day is. Uh, You know. And uh, 
I want you to get commitments at your meetings, which I think in the Midwest you call it service work. Is that right? And we call them commitments in, in California. And get commitments at all your meetings. And you treat those commitments like a job because he said, uh, you need AA more than it needs you. And I go, well, if that's the case, how come I have to keep all those commitments if, it, if, if I need it? You know, and he goes, well, there are people in AA who depend on you to show up when you say you're going to be there. So just be there and, and be there for those people. So I did what he said. Didn't like it. Didn't like stacking chairs, but there's nothing more fun than watching an insecure, insincere newcomer stacking chairs. Is there? Is there anything much better than watching some guy going, son of a bitch, I'm stand here. <laughs> oh, yeah, I'll stack your chairs. You know? uh, oh, I'll scrub out the coffee pot. Look, I'm cleaning the coffee pot, cleaning the coffee pot. Look, I'm getting real spiritual here. You know? I didn't do that, say that, but I did all the stuff that he asked me to do. I was the cord, I was the cord full roller. At the Saturday night meeting. I was a literature mule at the Wednesday night meeting. I, I wasn't good enough to sell the books, even though I worked in a bookstore. But I was good enough to carry the books in out of this guy's trunk because he had a bad back. So I could carry the books in and put them down. And he goes, okay, come back after the Lord's Prayer. I'll see you later. And I thought, you know. But I did it. And um, I did all the stuff they asked me to do. I went on moves. We help people move in our group. And it's like watching worker ants at a picnic, you know, you're just watching the food go by, watching the stuff go by. I did those things. I went to watches where you celebrate people getting a year sober, even though you don't care. And, um, and it's all these traditions. And, and went to coffee after the meetings and sat up till 1 o'clock in the morning drinking coffee and then went home and had to get up and go to work the next morning and, and did all that stuff, and it wasn't helping at all. By the time I was eight months sober... It hadn't helped me even one little bit. Uh, I wanted, I hadn't had a spiritual awakening. A spir- I need a spiritual awakening. Then I'd hear these people come up to the podium and go, my name is Jan and I haven't been to a meeting in seven months. <laughs> but I came back today and I had a spiritual awakening. I'm going, how did that happen? <laughs> how did that I've been making, cleaning the coffee pot, sweeping the floors, lugging the literature, doing all that crap, all that crap. Call him every day. Pray to God. Pray to, oh, thank you, God. Yeah, for what? I'm praying all these things. Spiritual experience, all that stuff. I'm praying for everything. And I come here and hear this sap who hasn't been here for seven months, and she gets a spiritual experience. Bingo. Tell me you don't get irritated with God sometimes, you know? I still get irritated with God. Jeez, you know, my... George Harrison's dead and Michael Bolton's still recording. Uh, wow. That's a bad judgment call in my view, but Father knows best. Uh, he's not even up there. I can talk to him down here. You know, what are you thinking? But... Uh, I did all that stuff, you know, and then, and, but I had no spiritual awakening. I kept praying every day. I'd say, God, please let me do your will today. Please help me to be of service to other people. And please show me what your will is and be really obvious about it because if you're not, I will miss it. Be obvious. Be really obvious because I'll miss it. I don't get subtlety. I don't get nuance. I don't get it. I gotta have, have, you know, I gotta have that. I gotta be picked up by the lapels. I gotta have one of those, who's your daddy kind of spiritual awakenings. I don't need, the still small voice in the night. And so uh, one night, eight and a half months sober, I'm mopping the floor at Ohio Street because that's what we Irish are built for. And uh, 
I'm mopping the floor and I'm looking at this line of people in line to thank the speaker. And I've been coming to this meeting for eight months and been doing everything he told me to do. And as I looked across, I wasn't even thinking about it. My mind was just completely, I'm mopping the floor. I'm just standing here mopping the floor. And I stopped for a second and I looked at the people. And as my eyes went across everybody's face standing in that line, it occurred to me right down in here that I knew every single one of those people and I liked them. How did that happen? And I felt what went with that was that I felt at that moment that if you... (laughs) Are you my wife's lawyer? (laughs) Um, I... uh, Camera flashes freak out the newcomers. Um, But... It occurred to me that all these people were my friends, and if I could have been any place else in the world at that moment, I wouldn't have taken it. And then I knew something was happening. I knew something was really happening in here because it was the same kind of feeling I had when I was at that meditation retreat, something I had no control over. It just hit me. And I've had a lot of those. And I went through, I, got a, I got, went back to grad school, and I became a teacher after that. I taught college, and I taught high school and was thought that that was my position. That was what I was going to do. I was good at it. I liked it. I liked the kids. I learned more about... Uh, I was taught at a Catholic high school. <laughs> Sleep tight, parents. The guy who was... <laughs> uh, but I uh, taught at this Catholic high school, and I just loved it. I loved these kids. I loved teaching them, even the ones that didn't like me. I cared about them because I'd learned how to care about people in AA that I didn't particularly know and who didn't particularly like me. And I learned to care about them. And, and a woman, a nun in my group, I got sober with this nun. I got sober with two nuns, actually, which does show you that God has a sense of humor. And uh, <laughs> Sister Mary said, you just have to treat your kids like little newcomers. You've got to talk to them and let them know you've got something that they need and that you're willing to go to any length to give it to them as long as they are. And I thought, okay, and I tried that in my class. I treated my kids like newcomers. And I treated them with the respect that you would treat a newcomer, but also with the forcefulness which you say, if you don't do this, you're not going to get what you want. And they were fine with it, you know, and, and I treated them like, like grown-ups. And I, uh, at about s- seven years into teaching, I got an opportunity to write, which I'd always wanted to do. And I'd been writing with my kids in class, and, and I got an opportunity, and I took it. My sponsor urged me to take it. I wouldn't have taken it on my own. Um, something about me just doesn't take opportunity. I did. I wrote a story last year uh, that I was working on, and it had to do with guns, and I was looking up just to see what the velocity of a pistol was at a certain time, and they said that a bullet comes out of the barrel of a gun at about, on one of these 1934 guns, at about 450 feet per second, which is fast. I mean, that's a fast-traveling bullet. But if you shoot it into a body of water, it comes out at 450 feet per second. It hits the surface of the water. It continues on that. And then it just stops and just harmlessly drifts to the bottom of the water. Such is the trajectory of my life. I come out of the barrel at 450 feet per second. I'm going to do it this time. I'm really going to do it. Then I hit the water. I keep going. And then all of a sudden I just stop and harmlessly drift to the bottom of the water. And the water is fear. And what happened in AA by doing the steps and making the amends and going, you know, doing all the stuff that people asked me to do, 
I started to not have so much fear and started to trust in a power bigger than I am to walk with me even though I am afraid. Because I hear that crap about, well, there, there can't be fear and faith in the same place. Sure there can. Sure there can. You can have fear and faith at the same time as long as you use the faith to push the fear. And that's what I did. And I... Um, Got a chance to be a writer, and I, t- I did it, and I kept complaining about the project I was working on with my sponsor, and he said, I kept telling him, you know, they keep rejecting it and telling me they want me to rewrite it. And then I tried to rewrite it, and they want it in a week, and, you know, we sent it back on Friday, but I can't get it perfect enough on Friday for them. And Bill said, they don't want it perfect, they just want it Friday. Just get it done. Forget about the result of it. Just get it done. And I would do that. And I started applying all those principles to my life and realized that Alcoholics Anonymous is not the program over here and life over here. It's the two things pushed together in which I take what I've learned from other people in AA and try to apply it into my habits in life. And then I go back to the big book and see... and see where I'm doing things right and where I need to calibrate my life a little bit. And the big book gets better every time I read it. You know, it takes on a fullness and a depth that I never experienced before. But every time I look at it, there's something new in there that applies to something I ought to be doing in my life. And then I have to go out and practice it, and I fail. And I, I, I stayed a bachelor for 17 years. I fell in love. I got married. It was a disaster. It wasn't her fault. It wasn't just my fault. It was just a disaster. And we had two children in the middle of it. And when I got separated from my wife, my son was about um, three, and my daughter was a little over a year. And... Um, I love my children. I've never had children before. I didn't start having kids till I was 49. And uh, I still got it. Uh, but I... Um, <laughs> not anymore, I'll tell you that. But I, uh, but I love... I adore these children. They are absolutely... My daughter, I told her I was coming to Kansas this weekend. She goes, where's that? And I, she's seven. And I said, I said it's, where, it's where Dorothy lives. And she said, is it black and white? <laughs> honest to God. Honest to God. I said, and I looked at her, and then she started laughing. But, you know, anyway. Nick told me it is, so I don't know. It's, um, but, so I love these kids, and I had to learn to be a divorce. My parents never divorced. I had to learn to be a divorced dad by guys in my group who were divorced dads who told me what they did in their lives to keep their relationship current and alive with their children. I've been doing that for the last four years. And I have a very active current. When I'm finished here, I'm going to go out and call my children and say goodnight to them. I do that every night and tell them I love them before they go to sleep. When their mother and I were having problems and she was living in the house and I had to get an apartment, uh, I would come by. She said, you're not welcome in this house anymore. I thought, okay, I'll just pay the mortgage. But uh, I... uh, (laughs) One time, just in an act of defiance, I waited till they were gone. I went into the house... And I went into their room and grabbed their pillows and kissed all over the pillows and put them back on their beds and thought, now when my kids go to sleep, they're going to have their dad's kisses all over their face and she doesn't even know about it. (laughs) But uh, I've learned how to be a dad, you know, and how to do the stuff that dads do and how to love my son and love my daughter. And, uh, uh, but it's all because of you, because I haven't been doing this by myself. And it's all because of doing what Alcoholics Anonymous has taught me to do. And um, I'll tell you a story and I'll sit down. Um, uh, I tell the story all the time. So again, you know, this is just part of my life. 
but uh, I had to make amends to my father. And, and Sherry was talking about making amends after a long period of time where you've held on to something for a long time. My, my dad was, uh, uh, for eight years, he was a drill instructor in the Marine Corps in the late 1930s and through World War II. And then he was a carpenter uh, when he got out of the Marines. And, and uh, I always felt like I'd been a big disappointment to him. I always felt like maybe one of the other kids should have lived and not me. Always had that undercurrent going on. My father had been deeply disappointed in me. And my mother, too. And so I, uh, I, he would get up, you know, when I was from about the seventh grade to the tenth grade, he would get up in the morning, and he was a farm boy. He'd get up really early, and he would make lunch for me, make a sandwich, chips, apple, put it in the bag, put my name on it, set it by the front door, and then he'd go off to work at McDonnell Douglas with a little lunchbox and his squishy-soled shoes. It just embarrassed me to have people see my dad in that outfit when their dads would wear jackets and coats and ties and stuff. I just felt, oh, God. And I would take that lunch and I'd walk to school, and the minute I crossed the property line at school, I'd just drop it in the trash can and just keep moving because cool kids don't carry their lunch to school. And my parents had really no means to pay for lunch every day, so they made my lunch and sent me to school with a brown bag. And every day I took that lunch that my father had gotten up early and made for me and dropped it in the trash can. And every time I did that, I didn't know it until I did an inventory on it, it tightened something inside of me, just made it tighter and constricted something inside of me so that when I did see my father and was around my father, there was a gap there because of something I was doing. But I always thought the gap was something that I was, a, I was feeling coming from him, that he'd been disappointed in me, that I'm not the son that he wanted. You know, I don't know where I got that. My father never said anything like that to me, ever, but I knew it. I knew it. And every day I'd throw that lunch away and uh, felt terrible about it. And that came up in the inventory, too. So after about 10 years, I waited 10 years to make amends to my dad because my sponsor told me exactly what to do when I was a year sober, and I didn't do it. And I waited, and I waited, and I waited. I didn't tell anybody about it. I didn't talk about it. And I finally was at an Al-Anon function with a, gr- a girlfriend at the time. And on the way home, I stopped. I heard Clint Hodges talk. And Clint talked about making amends to his mother. And he had a very specific way that it was done. And so I just listened to what he said from what I remembered. And I went across the street from the cemetery. And I bought some scissors and paper towels and some Windex. And I bought a, ca- a carnation because my dad loved carnations. And I went back across the street and found his grave and snipped around it and cleaned it up with the Windex and the paper towels and put the carnation down. And I sat there, and I hadn't written anything out. I didn't have a script or anything. I just sat there and told him about you. And I told him, I've been, I've been sober. And I've been doing all the stuff. And the people that I've met are good people who are reminding me of all the stuff that you taught me that I never paid any attention to. So if you can see what I'm doing now, I hope you're happy. And I hope I wasn't a disappointment because I know that I wasn't a very good son in trying to keep you at a distance. And uh, I, hope, I hope that's okay because he, he had been dead for years by then. And I went, you know, I went back to what I was doing for the, my life. And uh, about three months later, I was talking to somebody about my father and it occurred to me that, I, that he wasn't disappointed in me. It felt he hadn't been disappointed in me. It was fine. I didn't feel any embarrassment about talking about my dad. And something had changed inside of me, exactly like what Sherry's talking about. And it will happen for you if you follow through on what you're doing and don't have a God of your expectations, but have a God of your understanding. Have a power that you can surrender to. Because I did that just surrendering. I listened to what Clint said, and I did that with my father, and it saved my life. So I thank Clint, who died last year, 
But I, I also thank Alcoholics Anonymous for teaching Clint about that. But the story about this moves a little further. Just give me a second. Be patient. I'm sure many of you have blocks to drive home. Uh, but I... Um, I... Uh, uh, was telling my, I was emboldened by this experience with my father, uh, making amends to my father. So I was sitting at the table with my mom one time. My mom died a few years ago, but I told her uh, about what happened. And I said, and you know, I did an inventory in AA, and I need to tell you this, that I threw my lunch in the trash every day, the lunch that Dad made me, and I felt terrible about it. And, uh, and, and I, when I was throwing my lunch away, my mom said, well, I know you're throwing your lunch away. And she said, I said, how do you know? And she said, well, your dad told me. And I said, how did he know I was throwing my lunch away? And she said, every few months he'd ask you how your apple was in your lunch, and you'd give him the wrong answer. He would have put an orange in. Or he'd ask you how your sandwich was, you know, with enough peanut butter on it. Oh, yeah, it was perfect, but it had been something else. And he never did it to try to pry. He just would throw it out there and be, you know, and go. And I said, well, if he knew that I was throwing that lunch away every day, why did he keep making it for me? And my mom just looked at me across the table, and I got it. He did it simply because it was an act of love. It was a completely detached form of loving another person without expecting anything in return from it. And if I make your lunch for you and you want to throw it away, I made that lunch for you because I love you, and the action of making the lunch was demonstrating my love for you. And whatever you do with it is your business. I hope you get nourishment from it, but it's not my business if you don't. And the same thing applies in Alcoholics Anonymous. There are enormous acts of love going on in here. A guy who doesn't even know me comes and picks me up at the airport and is going to get up before in the middle of the night and take me back to the airport. That's not because he likes me. It's an act of love from something that he's gotten in Alcoholics Anonymous. The people came here and set up this meeting. Gary came here and is taping it. People have done a lot of stuff to, do, to get here to make this happen for you, and they all had something better to do on a Saturday right before Super Bowl. Everybody had something better to do, and yet they dropped what they were doing, and they came here to set it up because this is where the nourishment is. This is where the lunch is. This is where you can take of it, and you can satisfy your hunger in your soul for something by taking some simple actions having some coffee with us, laughing and scratching, doing some steps, and then going out into the world and trying to practice it, and then come back and tell us what you found. That's what love is here. It's not an emotional thing. It's just purely an action. It's just doing something, just like what Sherry talked about. And so I wish for you, that, you, first of all, that you can for some moment tonight look around at the people around you and know that there is that kind of love of service in this room. And if you're new, I hope you come back and take advantage of it because eventually you will be coming back in here to be of service to someone else and someone will be counting on you. And it's a great, that's the great gift because people who are here today, the people that are old-timers here today, are going to be dead and gone someday. And you're not, you're nobody, Chuck Chamberlain's been gone for 24 years or so, and people don't hardly remember him anymore except the people who were around when he was around. 
and yet Chuck's spirit is still alive in Alcoholics Anonymous. Clint Hodges is not around anymore, and yet his spirit is with people, and we'll be telling his stories. We're connected by our stories. We learn from each other's stories. We learn from each other's experience, and I'm grateful to add this to my experience, and I hope I'm going to enjoy spending the next couple hours with you guys. Thanks very much for being patient.